0: What's up people? I'm Erica and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. In last week's episode, I outlined the appalling story of Chevron Texaco's crimes in Ecuador. The company dumped more than 16 billion gallons of toxic oil waste into the soil, streams and rivers of the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest, poisoning the ecosystem, the local farmers and the indigenous inhabitants of the region. Today, we are going to continue the story by detailing Chevron's corporate prosecution of Steven Donziger, in retaliation for his work to represent the company's victims. Many are calling this the first corporate criminal prosecution in American history, as the case was led by a private corporate law firm with direct ties to Chevron. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest for today, Paul Pazimino. Paul is a fierce defender of human rights and the earth, and has been intimately involved in the struggle to hold Chevron accountable for its crimes in Ecuador. He's been the associate director of Amazon Watch for 15 years, and they are an organization whose mission is to protect the rainforest and our climate in solidarity with indigenous peoples. He is also the Columbia Country Specialist with Amnesty International USA. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: So, so happy to have you on the show. I, I was very nervous about trying to tell the second part of the story because it's it is complicated. It's hard for people to to kind of understand. It was hard for me to keep track of all the different cases involved. So yeah. um, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Yeah,
1: of course. And that, yeah, that's kind of by design, right? That Chevron yeah. wants to make it complicated. So we have to do our best to try to explain that to people so they really see what's going on here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Paul, you had a chance to read through my first episode about Chevron, uh, Chevron Texaco in Ecuador. Was there anything that I missed that, that should really be emphasized in that story?
1: Well, there's it could be, you know, a fifty part series really <laughs> yeah. to get into everything that happened. So True. there's no way to not miss something. But I, mm-hmm. I do think one thing that's hard for people to grasp is how much Chevron tried to derail the case in Ecuador, how many different ways and for years. I mean the mm-hmm. the level of of tricks that they played, the attacks on the judges, the ads that they took out the threats and intimidation, um, yeah. working with the, the Ecuadorian military. I mean, the sting operations that they tried, they, they sent these former convicted drug traffickers in to try to catch one of the judges saying that Chevron was guilty before he'd ruled. Yeah. He, they went in with a secret hidden camera. Right. And, uh, Diego Borja was involved and um, Wayne Hansen, Those are the two people involved. They went in with a secret camera inside their shirt and they pretended to be um, contractors that were going to be looking f- to get hired to clean up. Right. So they, they were <laughs> pretending like, hey, we heard there's wow. going to be business on the horizon. We want to know what you think about this Chevron case, hoping to catch the judge saying, oh, I'm going to find them guilty outside of the court. Right. Wow. Uh-huh. And they. They did this for close to an hour and the judge was polite. He kept listening to what they're saying and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Finally, he's like, I need to get out of here. This is going on forever. So he's, he's literally walking out the door. Like He has the door open and he's trying to be polite. but you can see he's like, I've had enough of this. Yeah. And the guy's like, well, I mean, this is going to be easier, right? Chevron's guilty. Chevron's guilty. And he, as he's leaving, he's like, you know ccc señor you know and he leaves and they're like aha he said they were guilty as he was leaving and then they got that judge oh taken God. off the case because wow. of that and I've that's I've never just heard one. that part <laughs> that's just one there are so many things like that like they filed mm-hmm. 40 motions within a within a day to try to stop the process and they did this mm-hmm. successfully for years And while they're doing it, the Ecuadorians are running out of money. People are being intimidated. People are literally getting sick and dying. And that's why the case took decades at this point. Obviously, they're still fighting. But just that part in Ecuador took so long because Chevron did everything it could to prevent the case from reaching a conclusion. So, I mean, like I said, there's no way to catch all of it. But um if people mm-hmm. read and learn more about what's going on, they will find more and more outrageous things that Chevron did in this case that are that are shocking. And, you know, I can't remember if you talked about the leaked video. You did talk about the leaked video. Yeah, the leaked, yeah, videos, the leaked right? video. Yeah. Another another outrageous chapter that, you know, one of the things about that is that those videos were verified by Chevron because they were submitted as evidence in the RICO case and Kaplan refused to permit them. But by submitting what? them, Chevron's lawyers saw them and Gibson Dunn and they demanded their return. They said, this is Chevron's property. You have to give <laughs> it back to us. And of course we didn't have to, and we didn't, but that just proved that was real. They, was, they were legit. <laughs>
0: yeah, oh my God. That's true. And those tapes were sent from a, a, a Chevron insider directly to Amazon Watch where you were working, right?
1: Yeah, they said were sent to our DC office. And it just had a note saying, I hope this helps in your case against Texaco, a friend from Chevron. And Love it. The other thing about that that was so frustrating is that when they first came out, we did an exclusive with Vice, which was great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Vice News was fantastic, and they've written a lot of good articles about this case and done yeah. videos. But I was working for weeks with a journalist from one of the three major networks in the U.S., and there was a whole big spread that was going to be posted to the front page of their website the day of the appeal hearing of the RICO trial. Mm-hmm. And after mm-hmm. the trial, I went back to the hotel and I called. Actually, I was in the I was in the office of Al Jazeera, and I called. I said, where's the article? It's not up. And the guy said... Off the record, which is why I'm not going to tell you which agency it was because he's still working there. He said, there's a smear campaign against you and my editor killed a story. We've been working on it for weeks. And it was a story about those tapes. And I said to the guy, it's not, you don't have to take our word for it. Like these are Chevron's videos. They've been authenticated as such in court. And you won't, your editor won't let you tell that story because it was coming from us.
2: Oh my god. And
1: that was just one little snippet of how much pressure Chevron has put on the press and it's continues to this day. In fact, there's a major newspaper that was supposed to run a story two weeks ago or the day of, of Donzinger's freedom. Mm-hmm. Congressman McGovern and nine other members of Congress wrote to Joe Biden and asked him to pardon Stephen just the way Amnesty has and others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a, there's a paper that had an exclusive on that. And the story was supposed to run that day. And then I found out from the journalist, the editors got her being harassed by Chevron's lawyers and they still haven't run the story. And the story is simply reporting on what's in the letter from Jesus. McGovern to Biden. But they've yeah. so intimidated news agencies that they're not willing to, they're not willing to risk even telling what a Congressman said. Imagine that happening now. Like, with all the crazy stuff we see happening with the government, imagine not reporting that when they report so many other yeah. crazy, literally, like think of Marjorie Taylor Greene and the stuff that she <laughs> says. You're reporting on yeah. that as lunacy. Reporting as on people's tweets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so totally. It's still very much the case that we're living in a world where Chevron has put its finger on the scales of justice and silenced the story and suppressed the rights of people trying to exercise their right of free expression.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize... So were you saying that the smear campaign, that they were they were also directing a smear campaign towards your organization yes. in addition to Stephen Donziger? Yes. Wow. So
1: we were named as co-conspirators, right? We, along with a lot of other groups. Why? Because the RICO case is a slap suit, right? St- strategic lawsuit against public participation. And the idea is usually not to win. It's to intimidate and scare Mm -hmm. away the opponents by threatening them with legal action. And Mm -hmm. so when Chevron was involved in the initial phase of the Rico case, it decided it wanted, well, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, their law firm, decided they wanted to file as many subpoenas as they could to target everybody who was involved in the case and say that it was you know, part of their discovery. So they named us as non-party co-conspirators saying, "Okay, we're not going to sue you directly, but you're involved. So we're going to force you to turn over thousands of documents, emails, everything. And they wow. hit us with these subpoenas. They tried the same thing with Rainforest Action Network with wow. many journalists and bloggers. Oh they, they hit hundreds of people with these subpoenas and fun note, Jennifer Reardon, who is Mm. likely going to be apported to the the Southern District of New York, she's a specialist at Gibson Dunn on discovery. And I believe we've never seen her billing records, but I'm very confident that she was involved in drafting these subpoenas, these very abusive subpoenas. So when Amazon Watch went to court, because we were based in San Francisco at the time, we fought in the Ninth Circuit, and we won completely. Every one of their subpoenas was thrown out by the judge who looked at it and said, This is an intimidation tactic to go after a critic of Chevron. This is not a a subpoena that's seeking to get at some specific information. And he said, I'm stopping short of sanctioning you. If you come back with any more subpoenas against Amazon watch, they better be very specific and you better show why you have a reason to request that. And they have not since come after us. And this was 2013 or, or I can't even remember. It's been so long ago, but the point being, They wanted to get us to be bogged down for months for us going through and give over all of our information. And they tried the same thing with other groups and individuals. And, you know, Mm -hmm. with some people, like with Joe Berlinger, it worked. And they were able to get, because Judge Kaplan gave Gibson done whatever it wanted, they forced the filmmaker Joe Berlinger to turn over all of his excerpts.
0: The creator of the film Crude?
1: The film Crude, exactly. Which they then edited to try to make Donzinger look even worse. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how they got Kaplan to agree to go after him and essentially, you know, find him liable for alleged fraud and ghostwriting. But it was all based on a lie.
0: Yeah. So before we get too deeper into the weeds with this, I was hoping that you could kind of explain for our listeners who Stephen Donziger is and how he got involved in this story and you know, what Chevron has done to him.
1: Yeah. So Stephen Donziger was a part of the legal team that filed the first class action lawsuit against Texaco. Mm-hmm. He had he traveled in the early nineties, saw the contamination and was Im- involved with other lawyers in filing that suit. And that's how he first started getting involved. But as the suit progressed and then eventually was moved to Ecuador, he became a member of the international legal team in support of the Ecuadorian case. He, he wasn't, mm-hmm. he didn't have a license to practice law in Ecuador. So as far as the Ecuadorian judgment, He wasn't arguing in the courtroom. Other lawyers, Pablo Fajardo and other lawyers in Ecuador did that. But he'd been since the beginning of the case an international advocate. He helped raise a lot of the financing and advocated publicly for this case because this is an epic battle that has gone on for decades. Right. The only way to maintain that type of of case is to get a lot of international support for it. And Stephen helped finance the case by finding investors who would support it so they could continue the fight because Chevron believed that it could just simply make the Ecuadorians go away. They could never afford to keep fighting for decades and they would simply give up and Chevron would win. That was their calculus. Right. So Stephen was so pivotal because he was able to keep support going for so long.
0: (laughs) He's a fundraiser, too, which is so hard to do. That's amazing.
1: An advocate, a public relations person, a fundraiser (laughs) and a lawyer. And now I think like the preeminent expert on corporate accountability in the United States and how corporations retaliate legally against these types of actions, because, you know, he's been front and the center of it for so long. And Mm -hmm. Stephen now, you know, he's had his license taken away, but but worse than that, He's become – Chevron has turned him into the villain, right? So Chevron realized from the beginning there was no way they could ever win this case on the merits. It was clear. They had already admitted to committing the crime in Ecuador anyway, right? They
0: they
1: said that they did it. They said that they did it as a cost-saving measure. They Mm -hmm. said that they did it for decades while they operated there. They simply didn't want to have to be the ones to pay to clean it up. So they figured (laughs) – How can we change the narrative so that people will believe us and not the victims in Ecuador? And the way Mm -hmm. to do that was to vilify this New York lawyer and make it about greedy international lawyers trying to make a buck off of Chevron. And so they spun that narrative. And Sam Singer who's a PR hack from from San Francisco is one of the people who came up with that. Oh, wow. Wow. And that's what we know now from their internal emails. Back in 2009, they said our long term strategy is to demonize Donziger. That's the quote, right? That was in 2009. Here we are in 2022. And they literally just criminalized him. So they're making good on that promise. Right. But Stephen if you've talked to him or if you've seen him, you know, he's kind of a larger than life personality too. He, <laughs> he lives up to that stereotypical, like really big, loud, boisterous New York lawyer, you know, he, <laughs> he lives, that's who he is. So yeah. that played into Chevron's narrative because they're like, here he is contrast him with very quiet indigenous communities from Ecuador who are very respectful, who are not, you know, getting in the face of people and Stephen would, would operate that way because he was up against literally 60 law firms and 2000 lawyers and legal professionals. And so it became Donzinger versus Chevron and Chevron thought if we can find the right judge and manipulate the situation so that the crime is not part of the trial and we can concoct enough of a story that a judge is going to go after Donzinger, which is exactly what they did. So two weeks prior to the Ecuadorian judgment, they preemptively filed this RICO case against Mm Donzinger. And that is how they prevented the Ecuadorians from ever bringing the evidence of their contamination, of the contamination in Ecuador, to a court in New York. And that's what's key about this strategy, because it's not about Chevron hiring lawyers to defend itself on the merits of the case, which everybody Mm -hmm. has a right to a lawyer, even Chevron should they get 60 when ecuadorians get one no (laughs) No. but they still have a right to a lawyer so they they preemptively did this and it shut the door and it's essentially denying access to justice to indigenous and and local communities that was the scheme behind it and then by getting Kaplan, judge Kaplan, who who not only suggested rico charges to chevron's lawyers appointed it to his own courtroom in a violation of the Southern District of New York's rules, he issued a global injunction before the Ecuadorian Supreme Court had even heard the case, right? Before it had been appealed, he tried to tell every judge in the world, you can't respect the Ecuadorian judgment which is absurd on its face, right? Because of course he doesn't have the authority to tell any judge anywhere outside the United States what to do. But that just shows you he was willing to play that card early on. This is how Mm -hmm. biased I am. Nobody should reject. He didn't read the Ecuadorian judgment. It hadn't gone through the appeal system there. But Kaplan was letting everybody know, you know, I'm biased towards Chevron. And – that's what played out in real life. That that injunction was struck down by the Second Circuit because it was obvious overreach. And if you read Kaplan's judgment, it specifically says that the Ecuadorians are free to seek enforcement outside the United States and mm-hmm. that this only applies there. That was put in because – Kaplan was slapped down when he tried to issue that global injunction. Oh, yeah. He had to be super clear that he didn't have authority outside of the United States.
0: Well, yeah, which was internationally illegal to do, saying that this case can't be picked up in any other country. It's not not a legal thing.
1: Exactly. and But they knew also that eventually Ecuadorians would do what they did, which is go to other countries to seek enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. But the point of this whole thing is that the proper, situ- the proper process would have been appeal the decision in Ecuador, appeal it to whatever level of court it goes. And it went all the way to the constitutional court. So there's the appeals court, the Supreme Court, and the constitutional court. Then once that is settled, defend based on that wherever the Ecuadorians seek to enforce it. So it would have been appropriate for the Ecuadorians to then take their judgment after 2013, when it was affirmed by the Supreme Court, to the United States To the Southern, to the Ninth Circuit where Chevron is headquartered and demand Mm. that they pay. And that would have meant that a judge looked at the Ecuadorian judgment and the evidence. And that's Mm. the last thing that Chevron wanted because they knew it's irrefutable evidence it would lose. So by doing this with the Rico case, They provided a blueprint for corporations to avoid fighting based on their actual practices and come up with other ways to silence and suppress and prevent their opponents from enforcing it. And it's called the kill step. Gibson Dunn even names it.
0: Wow. Oh, my God. That blows my mind.
1: Yeah. And they're proud of it. And they've made millions of dollars off of getting corporations off the hook. For their acts internationally by preventing, by delegitimizing and attacking the opponents rather than fighting on the merits of a case. And Stephen is the perfect example of how someone can be vilified and destroyed for doing that because they not only went after his law license, they tried to hold him accountable for millions of dollars in legal fees. They've taken away, they've frozen his bank accounts, The fact that he's now free from jail is great, but that's only one step. He still is under siege by this company because they are adamant that they want to make an example of him so other people do not follow in his footsteps. And that's what's so chilling about this because they're doing it with the full complicity of the U.S. judicial system, but also that the executive branch won't step in and do anything about it. Yeah. Despite the fact that members of Congress and the United Nations and the European Parliament and the entire global international human rights and environmental community have all stood up together and said, this is wrong. This is an abuse of justice. And it's a chilling effect on all of our work. You must intervene. Biden, Garland, you know, you must step in and take some control over this case so it's not handled by corporations. And so far, not surprisingly, Biden has done nothing. Yeah. Because I think he'd rather yeah. support
2: big oil than, um, you know, one lone human rights defender.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So last week we discussed a little bit. This was my first time learning about this story. So I brought up some frustrations that there was this landmark victory in an environmental case against an international corporation. And the case was like a resounding victory. And then it seemed like nothing really came of it. They didn't pay any of the or a tiny fraction of the yeah. reparations they were supposed to. So it's a frustrating outcome to have this victory kind of taken away. I can see this...
0: From the biggest environmental case in history.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. I can see, you know, in 20, 30, 50 years, looking back and either viewing this case as like the groundbreaking event that kind of led to the long-term victory of environmental justice over international corporations, or I could also seeing it be the kind of last gasp of (laughs) environmental justice trying to stand up to these corporations. So the question is, what determines which outcome we see? And what can people do to try and push things in the in the right direction?
1: Yeah, well, ironically, I mean, it's thanks to Chevron's attacks that we're talking about it now, right? And that you learned about (laughs) it when you just did, right? Yeah, Yeah. because this was a huge case and has been for so long. But You're hearing about it now because of what they've done to Stephen. And that is essentially where the hope lies that this case has now gone back to being the case that's too big to fail, which I I believe that it always was for the exact reasons that you talked about. Like if a corporation can get away with such a deliberate, heinous crime that it admits to doing in the most ecologically sensitive part of the planet and never is forced to pay a dime to actually clean it up. Then it's telling the rest of those companies, you can get away with murder. Yeah. And if we don't keep pushing to hold them to account, that will be the precedent. And I do think that ultimately we will hold them to account. But during the process, not only are a lot of people suffering and dying, but we're actually seeing kind of the anatomy of the corporate response, mm, right? And mm-hmm. we're learning. How to protect against it because and where we really are vulnerable, which is essentially when it comes to the U.S. law, it's with firms like Gibson Dunn who are allowed to employ these these tactics to circumvent the truth of what happened and hit people with other charges that are bogus because they have the money to file them. Right. So they they, the RICO case in and of itself, that strategy needs to be exposed and other organizations are learning from that. And, you know, mostly it's defense. You know, we have a group called Protect the Protest. It's a task force of NGOs that have come together to help (laughs) each other when they're slapped. A lot of that came about because of the Chevron case, because of energy transfer partners going after Greenpeace. And so they strike, we defend, you know, then we expose their strategy. That's what ultimately I think this case will help do is expose these strategies and give us mechanisms to try to prevent them from happening the next time. But in the meantime, the contamination is still poisoning people in the meantime, it's been decades and it's still not cleaned up. And my view now is that because of the additional suffering that Stephen has gone through. And of course, as he'll be the first to say, it's nothing compared to what the people of Ecuador have gone through. But because of that, There are new actors involved that weren't involved before. And the U.S. government is an an important one. So members of Congress have been recently Mm. saying, we see this as nothing more than a scheme to get away with not cleaning up. Like, we're not buying the RICO stuff. We're not buying the fraud story. We all know what's really going on here. Now, that starts with, you know, 10, 11 progressive members of Congress But then it can go from there to investigations, to the U.S. government assuming some responsibility for allowing its oil company to not clean up. One argument could be made that the U.S. government, to improve its diplomatic relationships with Ecuador, should actually initiate that cleanup and then make Chevron pay it back. Ultimately, there could be another process totally outside of the judicial one where Chevron is told if you want to have license to operate, I mean, there's a lot of pressure that the U.S. government could put on Chevron if it wanted to. But of course, we know the balance mm-hmm. of power now lies more in the hands of the fossil fuel industry over the government yeah. than the reverse. But as we yeah. move, hopefully, you know, not yesterday, what we learned about the Supreme Court and everything notwithstanding, hopefully move in the right direction when it comes to accountability and climate change. People will stand up and go, yeah, and the Chevron Ecuador case should be the first thing that we deal with when we talk about reparations for climate damage and damage to the environment. Yeah. A couple of years ago, people might not have said that because they still mm. bought into Chevron's bogus Rico case. It was still, yeah. oh, that was upheld on appeal. We can't talk about that. What a shame. The lawyer committed fraud. You know, let's it's it's tainted. Now people mm-hmm. realize that was just a fraud of Chevron's. That was a, that was yeah. all their concoction. So it's back on the table. And now that it's mm. back on the table, we need to make sure it continues to be at the first thing that people discuss when they talk about holding fossil fuel corporations to account for their harms. And that's where my hope, in, you know, I personally have hope that Chevron will eventually be pressured to actually clean up, whether that happens in a settlement or in a court in another country or, you know, elements of the U.S. government forcing them to. It's hard to foresee And I still don't think it's going to happen soon. It's going to take more years of fighting. But I do think that that's Mm -hmm. a real viable uh, option. And I think the climate justice movement can't survive without it. Like You can't take that big a loss and expect to turn to BP or Exxon or others or Shell and expect to hold them to account if Chevron is allowed to get away with it.
0: Yeah, this is setting a really, really sad precedent if they can just If if Chevron can just get away with committing these crimes and never has to pay anyone back,
1: and if other lawyers are afraid to do the work because they've seen what's happened to Stephen Donziger,
0: yeah, they realize,
1: oh yeah, I'm not willing to put my family, my future, my career, my life on the line to fight because they're going to destroy me.
0: And I've heard a lot of talk of deliberately using Donziger as a weapon against any kind of environmental organizing by targeting him by pursuing him in all these ways. I mean, it's also laying out a playbook for how to how to take down opponents to any fossil fuel industry or any other kind of industry that is committing atrocities.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And the judge and the judges that are being complicit in it. I mean, that that's one of the most scariest parts of this whole thing. Right. When it's not just Kaplan, it's not just one judge. Yeah. We've seen specifically in this district his working with Preska. So Judge Preska was the judge that Kaplan handpicked to try the criminal contempt of court case. And he, she's a Federalist Society member. It's it's a violation of the rules to appoint, to handpick somebody. It should have been randomly assigned, but just like he, he assigned it to his own court for the RICO case, he assigned it to Preska. Preska then allowed the appointment of a private prosecutor with ties to Chevron to prosecute the case. The standard in the court is supposed to be the appearance of a conflict of interest is enough to disqualify somebody. So Wow,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in this case,
2: what are you getting at, Paul? <laughs>
1: so, so it's Preska working with Kaplan and then, you know, as I touched on before, now we've got Jennifer Reardon a lawyer from the very same firm who was submitted for consideration by Trump and then renominated by Biden. And yeah. she's going to be in the same district. So you have these three federal judges who are appointed lifetime. Ugh. The chance of getting them out is next to nothing. You'd never impeach a federal judge. It hardly ever happens. And they have carte blanche. Look what they did to Stephen. They said he was a flight risk. So he was held pre-trial on a misdemeanor for over a year. Which is unprecedented. Unprecedented. And that the judge was just able to do it because she's a federal judge. What are you going to do? Nothing. You cannot do anything. And he's, he's still, remember, he's appealed the criminal conviction. They supposedly expedited his hearing because he was looking at jail time, Right. 6 6 months was the maximum sentence so the second circuit court of appeals said sure we'll expedite the process they heard the hearing they haven't even decided yet and he's already served all of his sentence so the
2: you know it's a mockery it's making a complete mockery of justice
0: of our legal system yeah yeah
2: yeah it kind of sounds like kind of sounds like there's an argument here that chevron has gone so far in the prosecution of Steven that it's kind of working against them at this point. Like they've demonized him to the point where they've kind of made him famous and it's gone on. It's, it's like a little bit too ludicrous, a little bit too heavy handed that it's kind of becoming obvious to more people that a bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's becoming more and more obvious to yeah. people that, you know, it's, it's unjust, which is working against them at this point. Would you, would you say that's yeah. accurate?
1: Exactly. And, and I think they not only did they overplay their hand, but, The fact of the matter is that the RICO case, as much as it was a victory for Chevron, it didn't actually protect it from the threat of enforcement because it only applied in the United States. And when Stephen, working with other lawyers, started to pursue enforcement elsewhere, like in Canada, that risk was elevated. And so their theory must have been, how do we prevent that from happening? If Donzinger is left on his own and no one will work with him, then he's less likely to be able to pursue enforcement and work with Ecuadorians. So they started trying to get his information so they could see who was supporting him. And when they found people, they would then bring them in to be deposed. And if so, if you were looking to if Stephen says, hey, look, we want to start an enforcement action in Australia, for example, and he's looking to supporters and they find out who that is, they say, well, this is a RICO case that Dossinger has lost. He's a fraudster. You can't worry if you work with him. You are you could be violating the, the judgment, the RICO judgment, and then you could be liable. So we oh, want to depose you. What are you going to do? Are you going to continue supporting him? Or are you going to go, yeah, I can't risk my livelihood by supporting this case. And now I've got lawyers calling me day and night, threatening me. So I'm out, which is what mm-hmm. they hoped they could do, which is why they kept going after him, even after they had their really powerful RICO victory. And that's where, as we're saying, they kind of went too far. They went beyond the pale and now it's backfired. And that's allowing people to get not only re-informed about the case, but hopefully more people supporting it. And that gives life to the Mm -hmm. hope of enforcement outside the United States. So Chevron overplayed its hand and now it's actually flat out lying about what happened in the Amazon because it's mm. trying to go back to this whole thing is a is a scam
0: even though they've already admitted and and you know this is all documented that they've committed these crimes wow
1: the ceo worth he said to shareholders at their shareholder meeting there's no scientific evidence of contamination there and if there were they wouldn't have had to make a fraudulent case in order to to try to oh, get us. And, oh, God. and that's what Representative Rashida Talib asked him when the CEOs mm-hmm. of oil execs were brought to testify before the House Oversight Committee last October. She questioned him about Chevron's operations globally, about all the money that it owes to communities that's harmed about. And, you know, she said, like, you can't arrest all of us. You may have Stonzinger going to jail, but we're going to keep fighting. But then she sent follow-up questions. And in those questions, she asked him um not only about the bribe but why did he tell shareholders there was no contamination if his company had already admitted that it contaminated so what's the mm. truth he hasn't responded to any of those questions yet he's just ignored congress
0: wow wow so do you see a path forward for the victims of chevron's pollution do you think you know in light of of the the growing public awareness of this case do you think that there is going to be a shift towards holding holding Chevron accountable?
1: Yeah, I do absolutely, and and you know part of it is because of what Stephen has gone through and the renewed understanding of what's really going on in this case. You know, there's people who are involved now, not even because of the Ecuadorian judgment, but because of the judicial abuse in the United States, mm-hmm. and there's lawyers. Not even necessarily activist lawyers, but other lawyers who yeah. are looking at the precedent going, yeah, I don't want to be you know, prosecuted by a private firm because the judge holds me in contempt when I'm appealing an order. Right. Yeah. So the, the group of people involved in this case has expanded quite a bit. The 68 Nobel Prize winners that wrote a letter on behalf of Stephen, they're not all Peace Prize winners. Winners. They're Nobel Prize winners. So chemistry, mm-hmm. all kinds of fields. This isn't, this mm-hmm. is no longer just like, you know, the environmental justice community harping about a case of harm against indigenous people. It's it's reached yeah. more of the mainstream. I say that with the exception of the mainstream media, right? Because the corporate media, as we've talked about, is still mostly uh-huh. silent about this, which is why so many people don't know about it. But as far as seeking enforcement and, and ultimate justice and cleanup. There's no – as long as the Ecuadorians are willing to fight and have international support, of which now they have more than they've had in a very long time, there's no end to this where Chevron doesn't ultimately have to pay. Whether it's the day Chevron is dismantled and all of its assets are divided up again to give it <laughs> to the people that it's harmed, because one day Chevron will not exist. The fossil fuel industry <laughs> is going to disappear, and there's no – There's no reformation. This is not a company that should be allowed to transition to green energy, not that it would anyway. This is a criminal enterprise that needs to be held to account. So eventually, those assets will be given to the people that it's harmed. I would like to think this case will be resolved before that. Um, And it's a very, I believe that it could be. But one way or another, Chevron would be forced to clean up what it did. Unfortunately, many more Ecuadorians may die in the meantime and over a thousand have already died and this is a generational fight. Mm -hmm. So it's a tragedy. Now, if somebody comes in who has the wealth and decides to pay to clean it up in the meantime and then go after Chevron, hey, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, maybe you (laughs) want to do some good with the billions of dollars that you have instead of creating Twitter. (laughs) Right, right. They could do that. They could actually pay to clean up and then be the ones to go after. It would be more of an equal footing if Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson took on Chevron. I'm not saying any (laughs) of them have ever said they're going to do anything like that. But yeah, the more people understand this case affects them, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that the more likelihood that the allies continue to grow and we can actually put together a force that Chevron would have to reckon with that would force them to clean up. And there are multiple ways to yeah. make it happen. Um, a country mm-hmm. like Australia, you know, anywhere that Chevron has assets, and there are many places around the world, all it takes is one, one court to say, yes, we believe this case should be enforced and we're going to turn over Chevron's assets to do that. Canada... There were some victories. Ultimately, it's not even decided finally, but ultimately Canada is protecting the corporate veil and is saying that Chevron Canada can't be held liable for Chevron Corporation's actions. Hmm. All they really have in Canada is a bank account. It's a seven-tier subsidiary of Chevron, but it's just names on a bank account on the names on a bank account, and the decisions are made in, in California about what she- what Chevron's doing in Canada. But the appeals court in Ontario... Ultimately said, Chevron Canada is not going can't be defended in the enforcement action, but another country might not say that it might actually agree yeah. with Ecuadorians, and that's all it takes. And Chevron would have to pay.
0: But do you think Chevron would actually pay up if a different country ordered them to do so? I mean, Ecuador they did. Would, <laughs> they would have
1: to seize their assets. Well, they could. They could uh, try to withdraw them beforehand, yeah. like they did in Ecuador. But you know, hopefully, <sighs> hopefully, what would happen is. As the case, and this is the way so much of this works, right? When it looked, when they read the writing on the wall, then they start to make contingency plans. So if Chevron saw an enforcement <laughs> action in another country was doomed to failure, they would start picking up the phone and talking about how to get out of this. And that's why this RICO case is so important and understanding what happened is so important because up to now, they've been able to walk into any court in the world and say, a U.S. judge found this was a fraud and it was upheld by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and other judges, while while technically don't have to listen to U.S. law, they are intimidated by that, of course, and they are swayed yeah. by that. But now that this yeah. case has been exposed as such a fraud and such a just deliberate attack on Donzinger based on bribed witness and false evidence, that is a much less deadly weapon that Chevron can wield internationally to try to prevent enforcement. So the more people know about it, and the more people know about what, and the more members of Congress and others who speak up about how this is just a fraud of chevrons, the more likely it is that Ecuadorians can actually find justice elsewhere and enforce that judgment.
0: Absolutely. Sidebar, oh, sidebar,
2: come on down to the sidebar. You're gonna make
0: drinks and talk shit about capitalism. joined once again by jesse torres our resident anti-capitalist bartender Um, and i'm really excited about this drink today it's called the class action cocktail jesse how you doing
3: very well how are you
0: i'm doing great doing better now i'm seeing you and we haven't gotten to do this in a while so i'm stoked i know it's been
3: a while but it's great to be back and i love being here
0: (laughs) awesome (laughs) well tell us a little bit about this drink
3: yeah, this is a really incredible drink, and it's really lovely. I'm really honored and glad that I was able to make this because the main ingredient is a tea called uh, Ochata Lojana, um, which comes from the city of Loja, which is west of the uh, zamora Chinchipe region, which is kind of where all the stuff is taking place. So mm. uh, this is a drink that is more common in the area and something that everyone kind of has their own recipe. It's basically made of up to 87 different flowers, botanicals, roots, and barks found in the area. So depending on what's growing or what's growing in someone's garden, it's something that's going to be going into that drink. Mm. Lots of things that go into it are like basil, chamomile, amaranth, mint, uh, lemon verbena. And it's just fresh plants and herbs that can be dried, but a lot of times are made fresh. You can find this In certain stores um, that Mm. carry South American products in the U.S., or you can also make your own. So I would suggest trying to find it, uh, or if you can't, try using your favorite herbal tea and Mm. throwing in some of these ingredients as well. It usually comes out looking purplish, and that's because of things like the the amaranth. But, Mm. you know, depending on what you put in, the color varies.
0: Is there a lot of cinnamon? Like an horchata?
3: Well, so that's something very interesting. So in, in the U.S., we're probably more familiar with the Mexican version of horchata, yeah. uh-huh. which is a non-dairy drink, but it's made from rice, but it has that creaminess. Mm-hmm. And it also is spiced with cinnamon. That has its roots from Spain, Oh, but even wow. there it's different. The word horchata comes from an old Latin word, <laughs> for uh, barley. And so in Spain, you'll find horchata still made with barley. But, hmm. you know, when it got to Mexico, they replaced it with rice. And then even in, in Ecuador and in other parts, um, it's not even made with any of that. It's got a whole <laughs> different meaning. Um, oh, wow. So, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's kind of, of misleading, and it, but it's got a really rich and diverse history.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm pretty sure that the name horchata was given it by the Spaniards for a drink that the indigenous people have been making for much longer than that. I um,
0: see, I see, uh-huh.
3: Yeah. But something that's really fantastic, and despite the name, um, something that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the base of the drink is the tea. You're going to want to brew the tea um, and then filter out the botanicals. You can serve it hot if you like. I know that's kind of common in the Western world is to serve tea hot, but you can also serve this cold or at room temperature most likely going to find it kind of at room temperature uh, in Ecuador. But either way, you know, if you want to have it chilled, brew it ahead of time and then chill it like in the refrigerator. And when you're ready to drink it, it'll already be nice and chilled. Nice. So this drink is perfect for making non-alcoholic or alcoholic. Um, if you don't imbibe, you know, just sweeten the tea as it is. And then there they sweeten it with something called panela, which is a raw mm. sugar Commonly in the U.S., you can find piloncillo, which is Mexican and is also a raw sugar. But any kind of sugar you have also works. They also kind of drink it on the sweet side, hmm. kind of like me. I like my things a little bit sweeter. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know, whatever works for you, you can sweeten as much as you like, and then you can also add either lemon or lime juice, something hmm. to to give it a little bit of acidity and zip.
0: Very nice.
3: If you do want to go the boozy route, I'd recommend using aguardiente, which is a Spirit, commonly found in Mexico, Central America, and South America. There are a couple brands that are from from Ecuador that you could use. One is Zumir, and the other one is Licor uh, Siete Pingas, which is kind of a bad word.
0: (laughs) I guess I don't know enough Spanish. Damn it.
3: Pingas means means penis (laughs) in kind of like a derogatory way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean...
0: Not like the nice penis word.
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, like saying like cock in, in yeah. English or something like that. So uh, pretty interesting name choice. But this this brand is specifically from the same region that um, all this is taking place at. So mm. if you can find it, that's cool. I mean, it's something that ties you directly back to the place and terroir of Ecuador. So, um, oh, by the way, de Diente is... In Ecuador, it's made from cane, which is also what rum is made from. Mm. Aguardiente can also be made from other things. It can be made from different grains like wheat, even rice, or even fruits. Depends on where you're at and where they're making it. But in Ecuador, in this part, they usually use cane. So if you can't find aguardiente, yeah. you can also use rum. I would f- find something that's unaged, something like Don Q.
0: A clear rum, right?
3: Or a clear rum, yeah. Um, that'll work too, and it'll, it'll fit the profile here.
0: Very cool.
3: So to make this drink, you basically just add everything together. My recommendation for the ratio is about 105 milliliters of the brewed tea, about 45 milliliters of the uh, Ardiente or light rum. Um, you can use more. If you want it boozier, you can use less. And then about 50 milliliters each of the sugar and lemon or lime juice. If you're having it hot, heat the tea up and add everything in there to stir. Um, if you're doing everything chilled... You can batch everything ahead of time, throw it in the fridge, and then when you're ready to drink it, you can drink it chilled, or you can even even drink it on ice. Um, it's a pretty flexible and like easygoing drink. You know, mm-hmm. it's really delicious because you know you have this strongly brewed tea that has all these beautiful botanicals and flowers and everything in it, and the Oriente is a little bit neutral, mm-hmm. so it doesn't add a whole lot of uh, spirit flavor to it, but it does give you you know, the boozy aspect to it. Mm. And it's also just a beautiful color. So I think this is a great way to honor the people because this is something that they're drinking already and something that is not too common here in the U.S. And I think that if you want to go out of your way to try and make this, it's something that I think you really be rewarded for.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's such a delicious drink. And I love that So many of the ingredients are so tied to the place that the story is based in. Like you did a fantastic job of again pulling all the pieces together in ways that make so much sense for the episode and uh yeah, to really honor the people and the place and even the ecosystem of Ecuador where a lot of these ingredients would be found. So
3: Yeah, and I think that's really important is because and I I feel that same way about the way that, you know, we should be eating and drinking. And I, I feel like You know, we could take definite clues from indigenous peoples who are living and eating and drinking things directly from where they're at and what they're farming and what's growing there. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a a drink that's made with things that are in season and things that are being harvested from their own gardens and from the wild and from the forest. So, you know, it's really a drink about place and it changes depending on where you are and what little – microclimate or whatever
0: <laughs> that's is, so cool. you know,
3: growing around you directly. Yeah. So, you know, you could do that too. You know, if if you wanted to instead make a tea that is based on ingredients found wherever you're living, mm-hmm. I think that's super cool. I mean, go and forage <laughs> or use stuff that's growing in your own garden. And I think that's probably maybe the best way to kind of honor this and, and try something new.
0: Totally. Oh, I love that. I mean, making it kind of your own and making it like, local and more sustainable in that it is local. I, I love that so much. <laughs> that's so perfect, Jesse.
3: I think this is a simple and delightful drink that, you know, where less is more.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's all about making a wonderful tea and then, you know, just adjusting it so that it has a good sweetness, uh, has a little bit of booze in it, and it's just something that's really enjoyable.
0: Tang. <laughs>
3: yeah, a little tang. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's, you know, hot out, you know, chill it like some some good iced tea or if it's colder or you want something in the evening to maybe you know help put you to bed, you know warm it up and have something nice to sip on.
0: <laughs> that sounds delightful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jesse. This is another really beautiful special drink, and I'm gonna be enjoying it over and over and over in the coming years. <laughs> John and I both loved it, so great fucking yeah. job.
3: <laughs> well, it's great being here and love making drinks for y'all. so I hope you all enjoy it out there.
0: Oh, you're the best, Jesse. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you next time.
3: Thank you. Talk to y'all soon.
0: So in the prior episode, I briefly touched upon the scandal surrounding Chevron's star witness, Alberto Guerra whose testimony was the basis for Judge Kaplan's ruling that the original case on behalf of Chevron's victims was based on fraud. Can you tell us about the compensation that the star witness received from Chevron in exchange for his testimony? And can you explain how we know that his testimony was false and fabricated by Chevron?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is so important because the fact that this was permitted again is shocking. And this is because yeah. Judge Kaplan allowed it, right? Let's be clear. Any fair judge would not have permitted the testimony of Alberto Guerra. It was so obviously false, but also it was paid, bought and paid for by Chevron. So Guerra yeah. at one point had been a, a judge on this case. He had been defrocked for accepting bribes as low as $200 to throw a case, right? Right.
0: Jesus Christ, $200. Yeah, oh so my you
1: God. could buy this guy for 200 bucks. <laughs> that Chevron's like, perfect. <laughs> exactly. And so he – he and he had like uh, only $2,000 or something like that in his bank account at the time, right? So he had oh, no money. Ideal. He, he had lost his job. And then Chevron says – um we will pay you for testimony in this case. And he they actually sent a representative with $18,000 in cash in a briefcase Very above to pay for his testimony. Now, what they said is like, oh, we're going to buy the computer from you. Like, we'll buy the evidence. And so Guerra basically made up a story that he was offered a bribe by Stephen Donzinger to ghostwrite the Ecuadorian judgment. And he said that he wrote it And he gave it to judge Zambrano, who was the judge who actually wrote the judgment and issued the judgment in 2011. The Mm -hmm. funny thing is though, he offered no evidence that that actually happened. There was no money. There was no ghost ray. There was no computer. There was no thumb drive. And whenever he was questioned, he would change his story. Well, first he would say he met with Steven at this restaurant. And then when, when, uh, Donziger's passports show that he wasn't in Ecuador at the time he would change the date of the meeting and then first he said it was on a computer then he said it was on a thumb drive it was super obvious he was making up the story in fact Chevron's lawyers met with him 53 times. I was going to say, he
0: he was coached. He was coached. Sounds like he was poorly coached.
1: (laughs) He was a joke witness. Like everybody
0: in the courtroom.
1: And and I should say for the record, like I was there for the Rico case. So I was in court, in Kaplan's court. I saw this is all firsthand. I saw what happened. Everybody knew this guy was lying. But this was the key. This was the only actual evidence that Chevron (laughs) had to offer. So (laughs) it was crucial that Kaplan accept him. So Kaplan did. He he even admitted in his decision that, you know, this is not, doesn't appear to be a credible witness, but all of the other circumstantial evidence corroborates his story, so I'm going to accept his testimony. It was all ridiculous. But then to make it worse, in another proceeding, in Chevron's arbitration case that it brought um, before the Permanent Court of Arbitration in this tribunal, Guerra admitted under questioning that he lied and that he lied to get more money because when they were giving him money for the story, he would look at what they had and and they would say like, is this enough? And he would say, well, you know, money talks, (laughs) but gold screams. So the more money you give me, and that's a direct quote (laughs) translated, right? The more money you give me, the better story I'm going to give you. And they paid it to him. So what they did is they they gave him a $12,000 a month stipend, they moved his entire family to the United States. They got him an immigration lawyer. They got them all visas. They bought them a house. They bought them a car and oh then they and then the, of course, there were the other cash that they gave him that I mentioned in the briefcase and As far as we know, he still has that agreement from Chevron. He's still living somewhere in the United States, and he was paid to lie for them and Like I said, no court would have would have allowed his testimony if they had been fair. And if yeah. Gara ever has to take the stand in some other country, in some enforcement action, for example, I'm sure... Chevron's going to have a nightmare because of course he'll admit the same thing that he was given money to testify and he's such a babbling idiot in so many ways that oh, god, the yes. whole thing would fall apart that's the last thing Chevron wants to see happen so Guerra is yeah. critical to this story and Zoe Littlepage who was one of the lawyers who tried the uh, Rico case who defended Donzinger has a great video I'll send you the link to where she mm. runs through the various stories that Guerra told and how he changed them real time <laughs> on the stand oh god this is why you got to for the good judge you know <laughs> oh yeah <God>. that's right <laughs> <laughs> and no jury like donziger's never seen a jury
0: that is crazy for and for a lawyer to be put through the ringer like that like that we were just talking about this today like that must be the most frustrating Kafka s situation to be like I I work on human rights abuses that's that's my job and I am the subject of these human rights abuses now yeah <laughs> it's crazy
1: it's terrifying. It it really is. And you know, Stephen, Stephen is super understanding of the fact, as I mentioned before, right, what he's gone through is nothing compared to what the Ecuadorian people have gone through. But but on the other hand, nobody's gone through what he has gone through before. (laughs) This has not happened to anybody before. And so it is really important that he stand up and say, everyone should pay attention to my case, not because of who I am, or that I'm suffering, but because this is a terrible precedent for all the rest of you. And we have to fight back against it or they will do it again and again, which is why the New York Times should be writing about this. And 60 Minutes should do a follow up story. And, you know, but yeah. of course, Ted Boutros of Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher is a lawyer for the New York Times and CNN. Uh,
0: God. And yeah. So
1: when they start to write the story, it miraculously goes away. Yeah. Which uh. has happened. The New York Times reporter was working on this story for months went to the editors to start. It was going to be in the New York Times Magazine. They killed the story. And this was like a year ago now.
0: Yeah. And then the New York Times was literally, you know, only blocks away from Stephen's house, but refused to report on this case for years, right? They were just completely ignoring it.
1: They wrote one story the day Stephen was convicted. That's it. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Which brings me to fossil fuel money in corporate media. I'm very worried that the story has been so suppressed because of all of the connections to the fossil fuel industry, all of the ad money that gets paid for by the fossil fuel industry. Do you think that the story can break through that wall?
1: Yeah. The the key is, in my view, what's beginning to happen now, right? Now that Steven Donziger is free from jail and house arrest, Mm -hmm. Attention is turning back to the people of Ecuador, which has always been the number one issue. But people were not hopping on a plane to go down and see the contamination any longer because that story has been covered for years, right? And now it was considered dead because of the RICO case, but it's been revitalized. So when Mm -hmm. artists and activists and members of Congress and other officials get on a plane and go see the contamination and then report back and that's covered in the international press, people will start to learn and go, wait, what? There's still 16 billion gallons of toxic waste that Chevron dumps sitting there poisoning people? Why has no one ever been forced to clean that up? Yeah. yeah. And when they talk about what really happened, when the eyes are on the actual evidence of the contamination, then there's a new there will be a new renewed effort to get justice for the people of Ecuador. Because the conversation is not about fraud and bribery and ghostwriting and the Ecuadorian judgment doesn't even have to be a part of the conversation for someone to tell the story about, Hey, this contamination is still there in Ecuador. And, you know, I don't know, Miley Cyrus or, or just pick your (laughs) artist, like whoever Mark Ruffalo just went to see with some of the, the Avengers, you know, imagine Mm -hmm. that there's no way That's not going to get covered in the press because. Got to get Mark. We got to get Mark on board. (laughs) Well, he's been a supporter. He's been a supporter, Um, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he and others who are working with him, who you know, the artists, artists that really genuinely care about these issues. Um, go down and do that. And I want to see that happen soon. I want to see more and more delegations happening to Ecuador. And Amazon Watch will be supporting that however we can, and we'll be there with them (laughs) if they want to go. Any of whom are listening to the show, hit me up. Oh, Mark's a big fan. Yes. (laughs) I bet he is.
0: It's kind of been uplifting to see the smaller news outlets and the independent media people just kind of jump on the story and run with it because they know how important it is, <laughs> when no one else will cover it. None of the big big news agencies.
2: Some really amazing podcasts. Oh
0: yeah, really great podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
2: That's right. It's
1: true. It's true. That's how people are finding out about it. You yeah. know, it's it's yeah. Democracy Now and the Intercept and podcasts and Amy Westervelt who did who does drills. Yeah, she's awesome. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's how people are learning about it. And I think it's going to take that before it breaks
2: back into the mainstream. Can we quote you on comparing us to democracy now, Paul? (laughs) Of course.
0: (laughs) So you've been at Amazon Watch for 15 years already, and you've been involved in this, this case with Chevron and Texaco and Ecuador for for that long, right? For, yeah. for that full 15 years? Wow. Yeah.
1: And, and Amazon Watch since 2001.
0: Wow. Can you talk a little bit about the connection of your organization to this whole story and um, and kind of the role that they've played in the story?
1: Yeah, of course. So Amazon Watch... You know, our our work is done in partnership and solidarity with indigenous communities. So since and we've been around for 26 years now, uh, when Chevron was planning to acquire Texaco, we went to the shareholder meeting and brought evidence of Texaco's contamination and argued that the board should not. Merge Because they were going to be buying this massive liability in Ecuadorian Amazon.
0: Were you personally there arguing? <laughs> no,
1: but my, our executive director, Leila Salazar-Lopez, she was there. Yeah. She actually began Very work cool. with Amazon Watch as our, our Chevron Texaco campaigner. In fact, wow. she said <gasps> to Amazon Watch, I want Amazon Watch to have a campaign on Chevron. And so they said, great, you're hired. She started doing that. And so we walked, <laughs> we would bring investors down, we would bring other um other people down to see the contamination and to meet the people affected, and then come back wow. and pressure Chevron to at that point not not merge with Texaco, but then after that settle the case and we immediately became a target of Chevron's because of our work, so we would help bring indigenous allies to confront shareholders face-to-face and the CEO at their shareholder meeting and tell them about what they were going through.
0: How powerful.
1: You know, I wish I could say they were received well, but they were usually given this like this patronizing racist response of like, well, you're being abused by Uh, lawyers. What a shame uh, that you don't, you're not sophisticated enough to see that this isn't our problem and you should go back to Ecuador and tell your government to clean up. That's what they were told year after year. Oh my
0: God. That is infuriating.
1: Oh, it was. It's so. And I, I, you know, when we confront the CEOs, we basically say that, you know, you can't continue with this racist approach of dismissing these people. They're sophisticated. They know what was done to them. And that's why they're here. Yeah. But, you know, it's an easy way for for these CEOs to dismiss them. Amazon Watch has continued working with the affected communities in many different ways. And we're we not only are trying to prevent new oil drilling, but. Um, UDAPT, which is the organization that represents the communities affected by Texaco, Chevron, um, is still working on cases against its own government and, and Petro Ecuador, the Ecuadorian oil company that is still flaring, that is still causing contamination. They've sued their government um, for incursion onto indigenous territory and in environmental violations. So that fight continues locally, even though Chevron would like everyone to think no one's ever gone after Ecuador for what it did. Why are you coming after us? But the truth is, yes, they have, and they continue to do that, but that doesn't yeah. absolve Chevron for its crimes. Yeah. So Amazon Watch accompanies groups. We provide resources, funding, accompaniment, um, training in some cases, and our role is to lift up the voices of the people affected and allow them to have the space to tell their truth and advocate for a change. And sometimes that means pushing banks to stop investing in, in extraction in the Amazon, which continues today. Um, and sometimes it's helping them to bring cases before international courts, like the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, and wow. challenge their own governments for violating their rights to free prior and informed consent about what happens on their territory. And Chevron, even though it's not drilling in the Ecuadorian Amazon since it left in 1990, when Texaco left in 92, it's still refining a huge amount mm. of the oil that is extracted. So the majority of the oil that's extracted from the Western Amazon comes to the United States. And most of that is refined in California. One out of every nine gallons of gas that California is put into their tank comes from the Amazon. And Chevron wow. is refining a lot of that. I think f- close to 14% of it in El Segundo, in Richmond. It's still profiting off of the destruction of the Amazon. So we're still working with indigenous communities that are trying to prevent new extraction and then hold accountable the companies that have caused harm throughout their previous extraction operations like Chevron.
0: I heard that Chevron in Richmond had done some horrible things to the surrounding community. I can't remember exactly the details of that, but the fact that they don't mind committing crimes on American soil as well is very disturbing and makes me Very worried about the future of this company and what they're going to do. So
1: yeah, the the Chevron Richmond refinery exploded almost ten years ago. It's it Mm. was in August. It'll be ten years. Fifteen thousand people were sent to the hospital, and Chevron was found. Yeah, they were found criminally liable for violation of EPA regulations, and their response wasn't to to help clean up and improve. Their response was to fight the city and try to undermine their local elections by spending millions of dollars to get a Chevron slate of city council members elected, and they lost. Grassroots organizers fought back against Chevron and they lost every one of those elections and the city sued Chevron and made it pay millions of dollars. But today, right now, workers in that refinery, they've been striking for two months over safety conditions. And they're still out there on picket lines. So this is over 100 years. This refinery has operated in Richmond and it has poisoned generations of mostly BIPOC community members who live outside the refinery. It's still doing it to this day. And you can see flaring when you drive by all the time. I live just a few miles away from there. And it's depressing and it's shocking what Chevron is willing to do to people who live right outside its own refineries.
0: Yeah. God, this just makes me think like, I could create a whole podcast on Chevron's crimes, you know?
1: You could. Well, (laughs) Destruction.org is the website for this report, Mm. which talks about $50 billion that Chevron owes to communities it has harmed around the globe for its operations in every continent. Oh, my God. It's the poster child for the worst oil company in the world. There's no question in my mind.
0: Well, when I cover any of these other stories, I'm going to have to reach out to you and, and get some help from you.
1: I'll be happy to.
0: Oh. I was thinking this might be a good place to ask you a little bit about your work with Amnesty International and the role that they've played in the story in calling out some of Chevron's crimes.
1: Yeah, that's. I'm glad to mention that I'm really grateful to Amnesty. So I'm, I've been a volunteer member of Amnesty's South American Country Specialist Program since 1995 and focused wow. specifically on Colombia for the most part. Amazing. That includes Ecuador too. And so – Amnesty was involved years ago because it has a business and human rights program. So Amnesty was involved in some of those shareholder resolutions and targeted. Some of the Amnesty activists were hit with subpoenas wow. as well.
0: What? And, oh my and,
1: god. Yeah, just for trying to organize shareholders to care about what happened in, in Ecuador. So Amnesty's known for a while and then recently when targeting came to, you know, Steven Donziger being thrown in jail, for advocating for environmental rights and for indigenous people, Amnesty stepped back in. They brought a complaint to the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention under the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and they filed a complaint. And that's how the UN ended up making the decision that Stephen Donziger's detention was arbitrary and human rights violation. Mm. and He should be compensated and there should be an investigation. So Amnesty is, is very concerned about the precedent and the intimidation of environmental and human rights defenders globally, but in this case, obviously, specifically in the United States. And is very worried that this is a trend that we're seeing in some countries, of course, when you do human rights work or environmental work, you're targeted and killed. Yeah. And Ecuador, you know, it's still violent and still dangerous to be an earth defender. Colombia is the worst place in the world to be a human rights defender. Mm -hmm. Brazil and Peru, hundreds of people killed every year for doing for advocating for the environment and human rights. In the United States, you know, it hasn't reached that level. But now this is a mechanism for the criminalization of those same advocates. And that's why Amnesty jumped in and said to Merrick Garland first, he should drop the charges. And now to Biden, he should grant a pardon and eliminate the charges against Donzinger and allow him to clean his record and get his law license back, etc. Yeah. So Amnesty has been great supporter of of Stevens and in, of the case in general for many years.
0: That's amazing. And it it blows my mind that Amnesty International and the UN and human rights advocates around the world, everything that they're saying about this case doesn't make a difference to people in power in the U.S., to politicians in the U.S. I mean, I'm amazed that that hasn't been the thing to really sway the political approach to this, what politicians are doing about this. If anything was going to, I would think that that would do it. But
1: Well, it it just shows you how pivotal and important this case is, right? Because Chevron is employing every tactic it can to make sure that it's not held to account because it knows it's the beginning of the domino effect. There are so many communities (laughs) Chevron (laughs) owes money to for its harms. It can't afford to allow people to sue it successfully. Because remember, this is different than a government saying to Chevron, you must clean up, even though Chevron doesn't respect governments either. It's It's been nailed for tax evasion. It's committed other crimes that are not just this type of crime but this is a case where indigenous and other communities successfully sued it in court and if mm-hmm. it honors that there there are many other communities lined up to do the same thing so <laughs> oh, it's God. putting the full weight of its pressure on us government to prevent that from happening and it, like i yeah. said that's why this battle is so important to the future of corporate accountability and climate justice
0: yeah
2: so the idea that yeah this is setting a dangerous precedent and it's the first i forget what term you used exactly paul but the the first corporate criminal prosecution criminal Mm -hmm. prosecution in america do you do you have any more thoughts on on how we can prevent that moving forward and how we can shift that par the paradigm away from from allowing corporations to to gain this type of power
1: well i mean really it does rely on congress to to do more like that the law that allowed Kaplan to appoint a private prosecutor after the federal prosecutor declined to take the case should not be allowed. Yeah, Unless there really is no other way. For example, the excuse that was given to Kaplan by the state by the federal prosecutor in New York was that they did not have the resources to try the case. And that's obviously not true because it's the most well-funded prosecutor's office in the entire country, right? Yeah. If They shouldn't be allowed to give that kind of excuse, but also they should have to make a recommendation. And that law could be changed to make that the case where the prosecutor has to say, okay, I don't have the resources, but I think this should be pursued, or I don't think this should like my my judge, my judgment as a prosecutor would be not to try this case. They should have to give an answer one way or the other, because that would have helped Stephen, because I'm sure they would have said, no, this shouldn't be prosecuted. This is a misdemeanor contempt of court when the ju- when the lawyer is appealing properly the, the orders in a civil case. Why would there be a criminal prosecution here? So. Rule 42 is the is the law that allows a judge to do this. And it's supposed to be because if a judge isn't being respected and wants to hold someone in contempt and there's no one else around, imagine it's Mayfair or whatever, some small town or who knows, where, where there actually is no resource, then in that case, in extreme circumstances, he that judge, he or she can find someone else to prosecute it. But, of course, they still can't be tied to the very people involved in the case, like the fossil yeah. fuel industry, right? Yeah. So there should have to be some standard to oversee mm-hmm. that when that happens. That all is on Congress's table, right? Somebody could suggest mm-hmm. an edit, a change to that law, maybe even Jim McGovern, who, who's been a champion of Stephen Donzinger, and then go through the Senate and actually amend the law to prevent judges from doing what they did to Stephen. It should become the Donzinger law.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> I love that. They
1: should stop this from <laughs> ever happening again. And it could, it well. could happen, but, you know, God, I mean, we can't even protect a woman's right to choose right now. So, Oh, my uh,
0: God, yeah. I know. <laughs>
1: I don't know what's yeah. going to happen with, with things like that. But it, there is a path. Mm-hmm. It's just going to take conviction, you know.
0: Yeah. And in, in that vein, it makes me think that, like, this whole strategy that corporations use of just bankrupting their opponents in court and filing motion after motion, doing everything, you know, just dragging people through the mud legally (laughs) to to rig the outcome in in different cases. I mean, it's that needs to be changed because the little guy can't pay for endless litigation. They can't pay to keep the case going. This is it's just it's so inherently unfair that that someone with more money or a company with a lot of money can just keep relentlessly persecuting someone in in our judicial system, prosecuting someone in our judicial system. So, Same
2: thing. Yeah, basically yeah.
0: in this case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, the,
1: and there's no federal anti-slap legislation too, which is another thing <sighs> yeah. that we need because yeah. they can just go to a state with friendly laws to corporations like North mm-hmm. Dakota and sue people there, which is what they're doing. So there isn't Timing there is them. a big push for for anti-slap legislation. I think Jamie Raskin is one of the um, Congress people that cares a lot about this and has been involved. Mm protecttheprotest.org is where the SLAP task force is. And there's information there about federal anti-SLAP, the movement for federal anti-SLAP legislation.
0: Very cool. That's awesome. So where else can people go if they want, if they're angry about this case, they want to speak out, they want to write to someone about this? What can people do to exercise some agency?
1: Well, there's a lot of places. Another good thing, but is that this is happening in May, and so May 21st is annual Global Anti Chevron Day. It's the only oil <laughs> company. It's Sorry. the only oil yeah. company that has an international day of action, and this will be year <laughs> number nine, I think. Um, the first one had protests in 20 different countries. So wow. this May 21st, go online, go to TrueCostOfChevron.com or amazonwatch.org, and you'll see how you can engage online to support anti-Chevron Day and send a message to the shareholders and to the CEO. And um, we have an action on amazonwatch.org also to pressure Biden to continue to consider, you know, the, the pardon of Steven, so you can send a message directly to him. You can also still send a message to your senators to not vote for Jennifer Reardon when she comes mm. up to the floor, the mm-hmm. Gibson Dunn lawyer who's up for that judgeship um, yeah. she hasn't been confirmed yet uh, it's likely that she will be but every senator should know that people are watching and that you can't just give rubber stamp judges who have been who have this history of supporting corporations and an unethical behavior like what Gibson Dunn did bribing Guerra and targeting activists with subpoenas and yeah. things like that so there are different ways to engage the best place that I know to really dig deeper into the history of this case is chevrontoxico.com that's a website that amazon watch launched many years ago it's got lots of videos on it telling you the story of the case and um the background to what happened you can see videos from the people you can see the chevron tapes so that's a good place to kind
2: of dive into the history of the case
0: that's awesome um Is there anything else that we missed?
2: Yeah, I did have one more question for Paul, actually. Um, If you could have lunch with any Star Trek character, who would it be and why is it Commander Data?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure it would be Data. You know, first
2: of all, I always have It's been great having you, Paul. Thank
1: you. (laughs) I love Data. I love Data.
2: But Patrick Stewart, you
1: know, he's such a great guy. And so Captain Picard would have to be, although I grew up on the original series, so... Spock and Kirk were my first jam, but I, 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 can't, I can't say no to Patrick Stewart. He's such a great, and he's an Amnesty supporter.
0: So. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, look okay, dude, yeah. You'll have to get him in the caravan, bring him down to Ecuador, part of the, the group of people to kind of shine light on this issue.
1: Um, that I would
0: love
2: to do that. That is such a great idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll get him and Mark together, yeah.
0: <laughs> and who else? Alec Baldwin and, like, there's a whole bunch of people. Susan's oh, yeah, Brandon. Right. He
2: co-authored <laughs> yeah. an article with you, right? Yeah, we did an
1: op-ed in the in the Guardian. Mm-hmm. Wow. He's been very <laughs> really good article. He told me he he wants to go. Um, you he got to plan on, this
0: trip. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, it. It's been tough for him the last few months. So I don't know what's going on with him now because of everything that happened around that. So, yeah. but Hopefully, one day we will get down there. And and as I said, I think more and more people will start going. And this yeah. will come become back onto the news that, that people just simply can't ignore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope to go down there someday and see with my own eyes, even though I know it would be very, very upsetting, very unsettling to see all of this devastation. Yeah.
1: But you can also go see the the pristine Amazon in other places mm. when you're there. And, you know, Ecuador is a beautiful, beautiful country. So yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's and actually, I was looking through stock photos, um, the Creative Commons photos to use for a graphic for this episode, and looking at photos of Ecuador. And like, like a few pages down as I'm scrolling, comes up a picture of you protesting in Ecuador. I'm like, oh, really? oh my god! <laughs> You're everywhere. You're doing all the good work, dude. I love it. That's great. <laughs> well. On that note, I guess uh, I guess we should say goodbye. Thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day to tell the story and talk with us about this. You really clarified so many things for me because this is it is complicated, and as you said, by design, it's complicated. So, yeah. thank you so much for helping me with this.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's really, really great that you're that you're talking about this, and I'm, I'd be happy to talk about it anytime. Just call me <laughs> up.
0: Oh, awesome! Thanks so much, Paul. You have a great night.
2: <laughs> okay, you too. That's our show. Thanks to Paul for coming on. And thanks to Jesse for the great cocktail as always. Thank you to Dreamweaver, that's DRMWVR, and Rathbone for the use of our theme songs. As you may well know, uh, one of the main ways you can help defeat capitalism is by giving us some money. So if you go on Patreon and look up Cocktails and Capitalism, you can support the show there. Or if you can't support the show through donations, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, tweet about the show, look us up on Instagram, tell somebody you know about it. It really helps get the word out. And thank you again to all of our continuing patrons. You guys really helped make this possible. We just picked up a new audio interface and a second mic. That's why I don't sound like I'm screaming across the room anymore. So that's fun. We'll see you next week.